Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Though photographers Dorothea Lang and Ansel Adams were contemporaries and longtime friends, most of their work portrays contrasting subject matter. Lang's artistic photo documentation set a new aesthetic standard for social commentary. Adams lit up nature's wonders with an unfailing eye and a preeminent technical skill. That they joined together to photograph Mormons in Utah in the early 1950s for Life magazine may come as a surprise. There's a new book out. It's called In a Rugged Land. It examines the history and content of the two photographers' forgotten collaboration, which they called Three Mormon Towns. The towns in question are Gunlock, Tokerville, and St. George. And uh, the author, James Swenson, uh, helps make sense of what they did, places their efforts alongside others who were also exploring particular qualities of the Mormon village at that time. James Swenson, the author, is Associate Professor of Art History and the History of Photography at Brigham Young University. He's author previously of Picturing Migrants, the Grapes of Wrath, a New Deal documentary photography. He's the recipient of the Butler Young Scholar Award from the Charles Red Center for Western Studies. James Swenson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so let's start with the, uh, the these famous photographers. Um, uh, maybe thumbnail sketch, maybe starting with Dorothy Lange. How would you situate her? What... Uh, why are we talking about her still? <laughs> well, so Dorothy Lange is, a, is, a, is one of the great examples, the great the photographers of the documentary photography style. And, you know, and when I talk about Dorothy Lange, most people don't know her name, but when I show the picture of the of the migrant mother taken during the Great Depression of the of the mother with the two children on her shoulders, taken in 1936 in in De Palma, California, then people recognize that image and they and they understand her and she is one of the most influential photographers easily of the 20th century um, known really for her, her ability to gain the trust of her um, subjects and to create these really emotive images that have like the migrant mother have become very well known even iconic and um, so that's Dorothea Lange in terms of Ansel Adams I think Ansel Adams is is far better known for most people, um, known mostly for his landscapes, for working in the American West. Um, I think if there was a household name in photography, it would probably be Ansel Adams. Um, we, we see his images of the West, you know, these beautiful photographs, and we know him well for his craft. I mean, anyone who's worked in a darkroom knows Ansel Adams and how technically perfect he was. So... Those are the two. I mean, and and they have really become two of the most famous names in, in American photography, especially in the twentieth century. Uh, Ansel Adams, I'm reading from your book. Um, he uh, he had a, a fascination with Utah. Right, he came came out to, to Utah quite a bit. Yeah, they both did. Um, so Adams, especially, you know, if you're interested in Western landscapes, I think we all know that that Utah's got well. We we have a good market on great landscape. So he was coming to Zion's. He really loved Zion National Park. Um, he loved Bryce and spent several um, road trips there. He also sent his son Michael up to Wasatch Academy, um, Mount Pleasant. So he was when he was taking his son to the prep school, he would drive all the way up through usually 89 or across through the desert. So he knew it well. Dorothea also knew it pretty well. She had worked there, um, worked here in the Great Depression, she had several friends that were here, um, so they both, for different reasons, had come to Utah quite often. One of my favorite passages from the book, Ansel Adams with a couple of friends, is uh, uh, traveling through Utah, photographing. Um, one of the friends, I can't remember their names, uh, is more and more fascinated with the landscape. The other is less and less so, and finally, Ansel Adams says, let's <laughs> go to Bryce Canyon, and the friend says, more nature, can't take more nature. Yeah, 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 so he's, that's right, he was camping with um, the Newhalls, Beaumont and Nance Newhall, who are, um, you know, key photo historians, and uh, yeah, they'd been out for a while, they hadn't showered, Nancy wanted more, Nancy and Ansel were particularly close, and Beaumont... Just said, look, I can't stand it. Just no more, no more <laughs> landscape. Um, I think that was on the on the rim at Bryce Canyon. So um, by that point, he had been he was hit hit his his limit. But I think Ansel just had an ability to keep going. I mean, he loved being in the landscape. Um, he loved wild places, not just in Utah and the West and Yosemite, obviously, but just everywhere he went. And uh, I mean, I think you can see why they were attracted to this place. 
I learned also from the book Ansel Adams was, uh, I guess, a big proponent of, uh, and it hadn't yet reached this point, of photography as art, right? That it should be taken seriously. Correct. Yeah, correct. And, and that takes us back to the Newhalls. Um, there were just a number of individuals who, in the 20s, but especially the 30s on, um, were really pushing for um, this idea that photography could be a creative medium. I think we often forget, I mean, we see photographs in museums now and galleries and auction houses, but I think we, it's, we can't forget that photography as an art form really tr- and truly wasn't accepted until the 60s and 70s. And so these individuals like um, Ansel Adams and Edward Weston, who were inspired by Paul Strand and Alfred Stieglitz, they had long been pushing for this idea that, that it was a creative medium, that it wasn't just a mechanical process, that in fact it took skill and eye and had just as much kind of an artistic aesthetic quality as painting or any other medium. Uh, so uh, maybe it's a transition now to the, this project, Three Mormon Towns. Um, the, the, maybe you could start by uh, telling us what the... Maybe where Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lang were in their careers at this point. Uh, my understanding from the book yeah. is that uh, this is uh, the the fear was uh, you know maybe the world of photography and photo documentation is passing us by. We'd um, correct, yeah. So that good point. Um, so by the time you get to the 1950s, when this collaboration took place, both Ansel and Dorothea were kind of at that mid-career plateau in a way. Um, Dorothea had. Um, she suffered from several elements throughout her life, and um, after her brilliant work in the Great Depression, she had basically almost this 10-year lull where she was barely able to do any work. And so she, in the early 1950s, was ready to go. I mean, she was starting to feel better. Some of her energy was coming back. Um, she was still recognized as one of the great voices in photography. Um, she was shown at the Museum of Modern Art and other places. And she was finally getting to that point where she felt she could do something. Ansel, too, had a mid kind of a, a crisis of his of that part of his career. <clears throat> he felt he was in the, uh, kind of a lull. As he said, it was the autumn of his life and his career, and he was kind of down. Um, he was receiving commissions to do commercial projects. <clears throat> excuse me, but those really never satisfied him. So he was looking for an avenue to do something, and they had collaborated a little bit during. The, uh, during World War II. And so they had kind of had experiences working together, and they were prodding each other and thinking about ideas. And, and Dorothea really was the driver for this specific project, and she had contacted Life, which really was in its heyday at that moment. And that's kind of how the ball started to roll. And um, Life was interested. They were interested in Adams and Lang working for them. And so it just it slowly started to evolve and started to happen by about 1950, especially by early 1953. Dorothy Lang apparently uh, preferred collaboration, right? Preferred working with others. Yeah, she was really good at it. Um, she, I think, so a little bit about Lang that I didn't mention. Prior to her experiences during the Great Depression, going out and you know photographing the migrants and the Okies. She had worked as a studio photographer, and I think as a studio photographer, you learn how to collaborate with your subjects. So she was collaborating with her subjects, but early in the Great Depression, she also started collaborating with um, a social scientist by the name of um, Paul S. Taylor, um, who's an economist um, at Berkeley. And um, they started collaborating, and eventually that became much more, and they got married, and, and uh, she divorced Maynard Dixon, the, the famous Western painter, uh, married Paul Taylor, and, and what they did in the Great Depression was really a collaboration. Um, Paul Taylor was doing his work, Lang was doing her work, and they really um, supported each other. And so she came out of that experience, um, I think, just understanding the power of collaboration and how, you know, if you involve several different individuals, you can have this real almost chorus of an idea. So she was very interested. I, I, I think um, much more so, I mean, I think Anvil Adams liked the idea of collaboration. I'm not sure if he loved the idea of collaboration. Mm. Um, he loved, I mean, he he was really good at working um, in the West and working kind of by himself and, you know, going off for long stretches of time and photographing 
um, and that's where he was good. But but I think Lane kind of prodded him on to be involved, and and Adams needed something. I mean, he he wanted something to help jumpstart his career, and, and life was the ticket. And this isn't an obvious collaboration, right, uh, Dorothy? Like this would seem to be more in her wheelhouse, right? Social commentary, photo documentation, <laughs> Ansel Adams true, more true. associated with nature. True, and, and that's the part of the problem is that Ansel Adams liked to believe he could do it all. Um, he had actually had points in his life. I mean, documentary photography was a big deal in the 1930s and into the 40s, and Adams kind of saw himself on the outside looking in. Um, you know, he was always known to be the great landscape photographer, but he saw himself as being able to do portraiture and still life. Um, he has a famous project during um, the World War II, and when he photo- when he goes out and photographs the internment camps at Manzanar and publishes a really nice documentary text about Manzanar, different from Lang's, but he saw that you know he he thought he thought he could do it. So on the surface, it seems like they are two quite disparate. Um, Photographers in, in an impossible match, but one liked to believe that they could do a little bit more of kind of the artistic stuff. I mean, they, they liked crossing over. They, 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 I think they that overlap intrigued them. So uh, this was an interesting moment in uh, Utah history, in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Mormons here. Um, so 1953, when uh, Lang and, and Adams arrive. That's the year of the Short Creek Raid, right? You also have nuclear testing Correct. going on? Uh, Correct. Yeah, so I think, you know, we... I think this is one of those periods that we really need to look at, because there really is a lot going on. I mean, as you said, you're right, the Short Creek Raid um, takes place three weeks, two, three weeks before Adzel and um, Dorothy Ling arrive in Utah. Um, Short Creek Raid, just for... Um, so we know is is the raid on the um, FLDS um, communities there. Um, Short Creek later becomes Colorado City, um, and so that was in the air. So people were suspicious. Um, you know, even people in Gunlock and St. George and Tokerville, they saw you know these federal you know federal authorities going in and separating families, and I think it really scared them. And you're right, as you said, the other thing that's going on not far from where they are is the nuclear testing that's going off in the Nevada test site. So in some ways, that corner of Utah is not sleepy at all. Um, and even in this period where we you know, kind of forget about 1950s, there is a lot happening. And so Dorothea Lang and Angela Lanz are kind of thrust right in the middle of that. Uh, so... Uh... How are, uh, the, the stakes are high here for uh, you know for these people, these communities, right, and for the officials. Uh, I, I'm uh, maybe talk a little bit about how these 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 communities were portrayed, if they were portrayed previously, and the, this is an interesting time for for the the church as well, a, a transition time. And I'm sure these people wanted to be portrayed positively, right? Correct. Yeah, and I think any everyone wants to be portrayed positively. Um, I mean, no one wants a photographer to come in and expose their dirty laundry. Um, but you're right, Tom. There was this was an important moment, and they and they saw it. and when prior to coming to St. George and and coming down to Southern Utah to Washington County, Dorothy Lang and Paul Taylor actually meet with um, um, Jerome Clark, right, um, the apostle and member of the presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at that time, and so they come in and get permission. They believe they have it, um, and so when they travel down to southern Utah, they, they, they believe that they have the permission to kind of get into these communities and to photograph them as they like. Now, they find that it's not so easy. Um, you know, as they discover um, their local authorities, and some are warmer to the idea of photographers coming in and photographing anything and everything they want. Some are more closed and more suspicious. Um, the, probably the most famous example, or the best example, is in Gunlock, where they come in, and, and the bishop at the time in Gunlock is a guy by the name of Ivan... Um, oh, hold on. Um, this is, I, I get, uh, let's see. i got to make sure I get this right, otherwise mm. I'll be in big trouble. <laughs> right. Uh, or the descendants yeah, so, and everybody so, lived there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I've said this name probably a thousand times. Anyway, so Ivan Hunt, Toby Hunt, is the bishop there, and he doesn't... You know, he, these photographers show up and by the way, prior to this, other sociologists and things had been working in Gunlock, so they weren't exactly, I mean, they weren't the first 
outsiders to come in. But Bishop Hunt doesn't know what to do, and so he calls Juanita Brooks in St. George, and he calls authorities up in, 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 Utah, in Salt Lake City and says, okay, what do I do? Um, and really, it's touch and go. I mean, when Lang and, and Adams are there, they know that if they don't get the permission from the bishop, who is in Gunlock in particular, is the mayor, I mean, he's, he's the, the authority in that small little community, that it's not going to happen. So... Um, yeah, they eventually are able to um, get permission and photograph um, almost everything. Bishop Hunt in Tokoro in Gunlock doesn't allow them to photograph the church, but when they move to Tokoroville, they find that it's a very different attitude. That they uh, Bishop there is a guy by the name of Howard Fish, who's like um, who actually was born in California, but had very deep ties to Tokoroville. Actually, old family ties to Tokerville, um, allows them to photograph anything they want. So they come in and they can photograph church services. And in fact, they actually have set up their camera, their tripod, in between the pulpit and the congregation. Um, and so you kind of get these interesting photographs of people looking at the photographers. Or I mean, And, you know, it's clearly not a typical Sunday there in Tokerville. And so, you know, these various communities knew that they were going to be represented. But there was one thing that Lang and, and Taylor particularly didn't tell them. They told them there was just going to be an exhibit, um, probably it, in, in life headquarters or someplace back east. They didn't reveal the full truth, and that's going to later on going to cause problems, that this, in fact, was going to show up in Life magazine, and it was therefore going to be seen by millions and millions of people. So... Um, there was they were a little duplicitous in that sense, but the communities, especially Gunlock and Tokerville, really wanted to shine, wanted to show their put their best foot forward, so to speak, and um, they they were they were invested in how they were to be represented and wanted to be represented well. Let's take a break. When we come back, more. Uh... The book is In a Rugged Land, Ansel Adams, Dorothy Lang, The Three Mormon Towns Collaboration, 1953-1954. The author is James Swenson. This book is out from University of Utah Press. And uh, James Swenson, maybe have you describe uh, some photographs and uh, tell me, you put them in context when we, when we come back. Uh, I have sure. a few, fo- few uh, favorites of, uh, of mine as well, uh, one of which, I'll just alert you, is page 115, um, uh, it's a town, uh, it's a street, I guess the main street in Gunlock. Um, yeah, I love that one too. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk yeah, about that one. Children standing on horses and such. Uh, more following the break. When guitarist Jason V.O. was getting ready to play this piece of music, he told Nashville Public Radio, quote, This is the most time I've spent on any piece of music ever. That's how hard it is. Coming up, Jason V.O. plays the guitar concerto by Jonathan Leshnoff on the next Performance Today from APM. Tomorrow night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams. You may be surprised to learn that uh, two famous photographers, Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lang, collaborated on uh, photographing uh, three uh, Mormon towns. Uh, this is 1953. Uh, three Mormon towns here were Gunlock, Tuckerville, and St. George. This was for Life magazine. We're talking about that collaboration and putting it into context. The book is In a Rugged Land, Hansel Adams, Dorothy Lang, and the Three Mormon Towns collaboration. James Swenson from Brigham Young University is our guest. He's the author. So, James Swenson, before we get into some of those uh, photographs, I-, I was fascinated and perhaps we'll loop back to this again later in the program. It's fascinating about Chapter 10. You um, you talk about the, the title of the chapter, The Essence of Things Seen. There are many levels of which a photographer can come in and, and capture images, especially of people. And you talk about 
um, the fact that it is much easier to capture religion than it is to capture faith with with photography. What if you talk about that a little oh, bit? I, I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I am. It's easier to come in and photograph the things of a of a church, right? I mean, if I'm going from an outsider photographing something like. The Catholic Church, I can photograph churches, I can photograph vestments and, and that type of thing. It's a much harder thing to capture belief. It's a much harder thing to understand belief um, um, and faith and, and capture those in any medium. And I think one of the things that is important to remember about this collaboration is um, Lang and Adams came in, they had friends that were Mormon. They understood um, parts of the faith. Um, but they were really seeing it kind of from an outside perspective. Um, and yet at the same time, they had enough of a sense and had been talking to people, and, and uh, particularly Dorothea Lang had, been, had spent year, a couple of years at least just doing research and trying to find the, the essence of what this thing was and what makes it so special um, and what makes it unique. And so I think one of the things that they do when they get here is they really they really want to show something. They want to show what makes these places um, they really want to capture that essence and that's always hard to do and 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 I think you can make the argument that they, certain ways they do, certain ways they don't. Um, there's a great photograph that they make um, after services in Tokerville. They um, they photograph the music, the, the, the concluding hymn which was Come, Come, Ye Saints. And they photograph that still there on the organ. Um, and so they understood certain parts of, 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 of not just Mormon culture, but some of the things that, that are unique and kind of that essential quality to what it means to be a Mormon at that time or a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. I mean, I think they, they, they tried to get to some of that. And that stands especially in contrast to other documentations that occur about the same time, or much more cynical approaches um, that their peers are making throughout the United States. They, they wanted to capture the beauty of this thing, and they believe they did. Um, uh, I think that's, that's an important thing to note as well. Dorothy Lang, um, I think the quote is, she says, pioneering hasn't stopped. Seems like she admired pioneering of all, all different stripes. Oh, they did, yeah. They did, especially coming out of the Great Depression. Um, Paul Taylor, in fact, um, would argue during the Great Depression and would write about this in um, Survey Graphic and other places that, you know what, um, pioneering is what we need to do. We need, re- we need to remember what pioneering was. We actually need to return to this idea of pioneering. So it wasn't something they just talked about, but they believed that it was um, a solution for some of Americans' problems and that we have kind of strayed from um, what pioneering means, that uh, self-reliance and industry and cooperation. Um, I think some of those basic virtues that they saw that were, were essential to kind of pulling us out of the Great Depression and to moving us into the future. I want to talk about some specific photographs to get us into this, uh, this project in specific. So this, uh, this photograph on page 115 that I referenced before the break, um, it, the title is Main Street Fall of Children, Gunlock, Utah, 1953. Tell us about this image. Yeah, that's a great one. So, and this one shows up in Life magazine as well when it comes out in before. Um, when Lang and Adams come to to, to Gunlock, um, they they have the things they want to photograph. But what they found was all they had to do is set up the camera, and that the children of Gunlock would come out. And so, I talked to a couple of these young, well, what were once youngsters, and they said, you know, it was a it was a fascinating day when Ansel Adams' big old um, Cadillac station wagon pulls up and all of this equipment started to come out. Eventually, Adams puts his tripod on top of his... Um, it actually had a platform on top of his car, there's his station wagon, and what they said is they just waited. And then all of a sudden, the kids would start to come out on their horses. Main Street was their playground, Lang says, and yeah, it is. A, I agree, Tom. It is a great photograph. You see the kids standing on their horses. They're performing for the camera as as only kids would do, and it's just this great 
snapshot right there on Main Street, which is at that point was unpaved. And here they are. Um, there's one, two, three. There's what? One, eight kids, three of which, four of which are standing on their horses, um, performing for Ansel Adams' camera. It's, it's a great shot. And, and that's interesting. They are performing, right? Uh, Ansel Adams sets up the oh, camera, absolutely. and that attracts the yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, documentary photography doesn't mean you can't have people posing, right? I mean, yes, you don't want to stage the photograph, but yeah, clearly they're posing. Um, it's just this wonderful, youthful shot, and and that's what they they saw to, uh, saw Gunluck as a youthful place and just being the vibrancy of the children and and the way in which they formed and. Um, that's a great photograph, and there's others in that series, what they call horse playing, where you see the kids on their horses, playing with their horses, crawling on the horses. The cover shot for the book um, is several of the girls there of Gunluck, who are all lined up on their on their play horse, on their horse that they would just play around town on. It's great. I, I agree. There's just something, and again, I know a lot of it's nostalgia looking back at this kind of seemingly more simple time, but it is a great photograph. That is an interesting word, nostalgia. This at the time uh, was there any nostalgia at the time, and I guess it'd be more so maybe now, looking back at these photographs. I think so. At the time, you know, as you said earlier, Tom, they're looking back and kind of pioneering, um, and if they're pioneering itself. There's a nostalgic element to it, looking back to the past to try to figure out what's been lost or what can be revived, and so I think yes. Um, both Ansel Adams and Dorothy Ling, when they're coming to these towns, there's a nostalgia for small-town life that they miss. At one point, in fact, during their work, um, and uh, Dorothy Ling compares the towns that she's visiting to her hometown of Oakland um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she says, you know, it's just different. It's, it, my town is not a hometown anymore. So, yes, they were. this project was driven by nostalgia to find those small kind of pioneering communities, um, still there in the West. I think when we look back at these images, we have even greater nostalgia um, because I, I think so. We, we look back to play times like the 1950s in such idealistic terms that, you know, life must have been better and simpler and more beautiful and, you know, people were kinder and yeah, I think you can go on and on and on. And so I think when we look at these images, yeah, I, I, I think that's, um, there's no way of not being nostalgic for some of these places and um, what seems like more simpler times as we look at these photographs. Well, speaking of that, uh, pages 104, 105, uh, we have a woman uh, bottling. She's bottled, uh, looks like, green beans. Yeah, she's doing green beans. Yeah, this was, um, so this is Ivan Hunt's wife, the bishop's wife, Jessie Waite Hunt. And, yeah, so they were, um, when they came, the collaboration took place in August. They were there for two to three weeks in August of 1953. Um, it was, it was, it was really hot, which... Um, Lang suffered from the heat, but at that point in time, it was also bottling season, and so um, they took every opportunity to you know, get into the homes and to photograph bottling, drying of the bottles. Yeah, in this case, she's drying, um, she's bottling green pe- beans. Um, there's another great photograph just on the next page where Jessie Wade is holding one of her, her young sons in her hands, kind of doing it all um, as she's you know, filling up her bottles and will then later seal them. And then there's the, the facing page here, bottles drawing their upside down, um, perched on the, this picket fence. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what is a practicality for Jessie Waite? You know, she's got to dry the bottles before she starts using them again. Becomes an opportunity for Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lane to make an interesting photograph. You know, the bottles are perched on this almost homemade, what seems to be cedar post, I can't exactly tell. But it's an interesting photograph. And so I think um, they were looking for these moments, for these, these shots in which they could capture not just the essence of, of bottling, but also looking for these kind of aesthetic moments that they, that, I mean, they're in tune to it. They, they both had brilliant eyes. And I think this is just another example of that. And these images are poignant for me. I, I, well, some of my favorite memories, my grandmother, my mother, bottling. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's, it's, it would, you know, it's, I think it's one of those things that, um, and granted, a lot of people still bottle, but, you know, it's just that, that idea of, just like you did, Tom, just thinking back of your grandmother or your mother, um, I think that's, I think that's in part why these images resonate so well with us, is because they do touch upon those, those 
memories, those often fond memories. And we can remember, I remember my mom doing the same thing. Uh, in uh, Later in the book, you, you uh, survey some other photographers um, and their projects. One is... Uh, Someone I can't I remember their name uh, is is I don't know if it's ongoing photographing um, towns in the west of what under eight hundred people or something. Um, oh, correct. Yeah. So um, later on in the book, uh, when I'm talking about you know trying to capture this place, this kind of distinct place of Utah and Mormon towns, there's been a number of photographers um, coming through. I mean, it's um, actually directly inspired by three Mormon towns, and one of them is a is a great young photographer by the name of Christine Armbruster. Um, And she had a project called Utah 800, in which um, she traveled around to communities throughout Utah of populations 800 and left. left. And there's actually going to be an article on, I've got an article coming out on Utah Historical Quarterly about Christine's work, which I think is, I think is great. I think she, it's, it's a wonderful project and was directly inspired by seeing three Mormon towns as an exhibit down at BYU um, what um, six years ago or so? What, what did she? I don't. You, maybe talk to her. What uh, or supposition? What? What about uh, this project? Three Mormon towns inspired her to uh, to do her a project. And I, I guess um, there's uh, just preface this in my mind at least, and maybe others. There's kind of a romance of these very small towns. I, maybe if you live in them, there's it's less romantic. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> true. True. I mean, you know, there is an insider outsider perspective, this. and. When Christine saw these photographs, um, they really helped her, and I think other people, I've heard this from others, um, you know, we tend to just drive through towns. Or we get, we, there's so much that is invisible to us that we don't slow down, we don't stop, and we don't see. And I think what Three Mormon Towns does is that it shows us, and this is especially true for Christine Armbruster, that it shows us there's, there's a beauty and a kind of a poetry to those places that we tend to just drive past and we don't think about and we don't stop. And so this project, um, Utah 800 for Christine was one of those where she's like, look, I'm going to go back. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to get to know who they are and their stories. And once she did that, she found that they started to invite her in and then she would get the stories and then she'd get stories on top of stories. And that's exactly what Dorothy and Ling and Anselms did in 1953. They, they had contacts in each of these three places, the primary places where they worked, but they would go beyond them and, and be invited into this home, or they would realize that this was going on, or that it was bottling season. And, and so I think just that opportunity, almost that serendipity um, to you know, take advantage of and, and to see those things that are typically invisible to us. By the way, you include at least one of these images of hers in the book. Um, it's a town I know, at least from driving through, Tabiona. And it's the, the gentleman exactly. who, who owns the cafe and the inn and the grocery store. There, It's yeah, exactly. all rolled into and, one. And, and that's exactly it, Tommy. Like, I've driven through it, too. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been through Tabiona, but I've never really stopped. And I think that whole idea, okay, of slowing down and stopping and it's a great photograph. I mean, he's sitting there, he's drinking a Mountain Dew, he's reading the Trib. Um, not, not necessarily the typical things you would expect, and that's what happens when you are able to get into people's lives. The stereotypes seem to kind of fade away, and you get to see people that are probably closer to you than you'd think. Let's take another break. Uh, let's uh, when we come back, I uh, want to uh, talk about some more images here. We're talking about a book, In a Rugged Land. It's out uh, from University of Utah Press. The author, James Swenson, is with us. This is a collaboration, 1953, Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lang uh, photographed uh, three Mormon towns. We're talking about Gunlock, Tokerville, and St. George. They called it Three Mormon Towns, and it appeared in Life magazine. Uh, just to alert you, James Swenson, I was very struck by an image on page 98. This is a, uh, a gentleman, um, reminds me a little bit of the, the migrant mother. Uh, Jake yeah, Jones is yeah. his name from, from Gunlock. Uh, another image, um, this is, uh, let's see, I have to turn over the page to get the number here. Um, it's no page number, it's uh, page approximately 185. Uh, it's it's uh, titled St. George Highway. And I want to get into an idea. There's a phrase in the book uh, talking about um, there's a difference between the West and the idea of the West, 
which I'm sure Ansel Adams and uh, Dorothy Lange um, delineated that line through much of their careers. More following this break. They call it God's own country, but for growing food, Kerala in India is less than heavenly. Because people were moving away from farming, they are into other occupation. So the land is lying fallow. So people with other interest seeing the cheap land come and buy. But rooftop gardeners and the government are getting things growing again. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. You may not know that, uh, well, hopefully you do now if you've been listening to this hour, but if you've just tuned in, you may not know that Ansel Adams, Dorothea Lange, two very famous photographers, collaborated uh, for a project here in Utah, 1953. Uh, they photographed people and places in uh, three Mormon towns, and those towns are Gunlock, Tuckerville, and St. George uh, for Life magazine. Um, maybe talk Ansel Adams or, or um, James Swenson. Just called you Ansel Adams. I guess that's high praise. Um, but uh, so, uh, uh, James Swenson, um, the, the reason this is maybe not well known is that this is, is just a footnote in, in these two photographers' uh, works. Why, why is that? And they came to see this as somewhat something of a failure. Well, that's true. Um, it, today, we tend to talk about Dorothy Lane and Ansel Adams in very different ways. Um, we tend to forget that they were close friends and they were collaborators. And so, uh, um, and the other reason why I think we don't talk about that much and, and the reason why it became a footnote in their careers is that a lot of the work um, wasn't seen. Um, it clearly was seen when it was published by Life magazine in 1954. But um, it resided in archives and both of them become frustrated with it. They're frustrated with the project, especially Ansel Adams. Um, he became extremely frustrated um, with in working with Dorothea Lange. He loved her, right? But he the, the extreme intensity of working with Lange was was difficult for him, and, and he kind of rubbed against it, especially late in the collaboration. Um, it doesn't show up in well, it, if it does show up in uh, monographs of Lange or Adams, it might be an image or two. And it tends to show up more in Lang's work, who embraced it more, far more, in fact, than Adams. Um, the negatives ended up in the Lang archive in Oakland. Um, in fact, that was part of the tricky part of writing this book, is to figure out who made what. Um, but as a collaboration, sometimes they were passing cameras back and forth. They were working together, working on, on alongside each other. And so the sour way in which it ended, I think, um, made it more difficult for Adams to really up, hold it up. And, and even though right when it was finished, they both saw it as being good, and they both thought it was actually some of the best work of their careers, it, it becomes kind of hidden and, and almost forgotten in these archives um, and not seen. Many of the images, in fact, I used from the book were never have never been published or exist just as the negatives, which was an exciting part of making this, figuring out, bringing back some of these images that haven't been, actually never been seen. Maybe just in passing, I want to pick up on something you said. The intensity of working with Lang, was that typical? And what, why, why was typical. that? Lang was, Lang was a very driven, very intense individual, uh, and especially on those causes that she had. I mean, even her own sons um, acknowledged that it, you know, it wasn't easy living with Dorothea Lang. Um, she was, she had a cause, and she believed in it, and um, she wanted this project, this collaboration, to go a particular way. She had all these ideas. She had done all of her homework. Um, I need—I neglected to mention, not only do they, is this collaboration between Hansel Adams and Dorothy Lane, but Paul S. Taylor is there with them in St. George in southern Utah, as well as um, Dorothy Lane's um, son, um, Daniel Dixon, um, who is who becomes the writer for the project. So they're all there working at the same time, and 
And Lang was driven. I mean, she was pushing. She wanted this to be something special. And um, that that became hard for Ansel Adams. So uh, this was commissioned by Life magazine. It did end up in Life magazine, right? But I think there was a conflict between the magazine's view of what the project was going to be and Langs and Adams' view. Yeah, and and that was going to happen. There's two very different ways of thinking about photography. I mean, Lang and Adams, um, they had never really had an editor working with their work. They had, you know, they were, they saw themselves as kind of creative entities and especially with a creative identity. And Life Magazine has to be more practical. Um, you know, they made more than 2,000 photographs for, during this collaboration. When they pitched it, when they brought the images back to life, um, Lang, in fact, had these beautiful um, layouts that are in, in the book. And there were far more images than Life Magazine could ever publish in their pages. Um, and so there was always going to be a give and take. And both of them become rather, Lang and, and Adams become rather frustrated because they can't include it all. They, they, their, their image or their vision of the project becomes kind of blunted um, by what they see as the editors of Life magazine who have to kind of cut and, and move things around. If you look at the overall arc of the, of the photo essay in Life and you look at Lane's um, storyboards, there are some similarities, but you will also see that it, they couldn't publish that many images. And for somebody like Ansel Adams, who's used to these pristine photographs, um, Life magazine and their publishing, I mean, and just the, the print quality of a magazine is never going to quite add up. So, yeah, there was there was clear frustrations that were built in from the very beginning. What about the people in these towns who've been photographed, who've taken uh, these pho- photographers into their into their lives? When the when the magazine comes out, what what do they think? Well, so this goes back to what I mentioned earlier. Um, when they were coming, they mentioned that it was going to be a exhibition, you know, probably seen by a few hundred people. They didn't tell them, and this was on purpose, and this was especially um, Lang and Taylor, they didn't tell them that it was going to appear in Life magazine, which I think which causes major problems. Um, there was a, particularly a, a citizen of, um, a resident of Tokerville by the name of Vera Beatty, and they photograph her in her, in her canning apron. Um, she's got disheveled hair. She's clearly been working and slaving away all day. Um, and they photograph her against old brick wall, old brick walls, and in her coming out of, you know, peeking out from her attic. Um, when she shows up, when Beatty shows up in Life magazine, and unbeknownst to her, seen by millions of people, it made her mad. And and I think we, I, I we can understand that. I mean, she she's sitting there, kind of rather disheveled, and now millions of people are looking at her. Um, she becomes so mad, in fact, that she sends a nasty letter to Life magazine demanding money which is then later forwarded to um, Dorothea Lang. And, and, and again, in terms of the sour ending, that, that's another component to it. That's interesting. She demands money. But if I'm going to be humiliated in the National Magazine, well, yeah, wants of compensation, yeah, is that what she's so, saying? You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, if I'm going to be humiliated, I might as well get $1,000 out of it. Yeah. Um, she, uh, well, I mean, from Baby's perspective, she sees these photographs and and... She believes, as many we do, like, hey, the artist or the photographer is getting money. I deserve some of that, too. In reality, Lang and Adams didn't receive very much at all for their collaboration. But the whole idea of, like, look, if these famous artists are making money on this, it's my image. So, and that's, that's a deeper, uh, much more um, lengthy conversation. Did she get the full $1,000? No, no, no. Oh, I think okay. what happened was that I think they wrote her back. Um, they actually, um, Taylor called up the bishop, Bishop Fish, and Howard Fish went over and I think was able to kind of mollify the situation and things kind of calmed down a little bit. Mm. Ansel Adams, though, knowing that there was problems, actually went back to southern Utah next time he was there, and he gave prints. Um, he tried to do everything he could, but he realized that, that they were suspicious of him, and, and he was angry at Lang right, for not telling the truth. And um, the townspeople felt betrayed. Adams felt betrayed in some ways. So, again, um, this is part of that, that kind of collapse that occurs with this collaboration after it's all said 
said and done. I just have uh, about six minutes left of conversation. I want to uh, to talk about a few of these images. Uh, first on page 98. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. This, this yeah, image really, really struck me. This kind of, as, as I've been absorbing this image, um, I think one of my reactions is this This is my, uh, we talked about the idea of the West versus the real West. This is kind of my image of the West. You know, the, the image we that I have is, uh, I guess, a cowboy, right? Um, uh, her, yeah, her, sure. Heroic image uh, from from below, the sunlight streaming through. Uh, this is a gentleman. This is probably a more realistic uh, image of uh, of a man who's seen some life and worked hard. And uh, uh, maybe you could describe this image. Uh, his name is Jake Jones. Yeah, yeah, that was a good. And so I've only included a few of the images of Jake Jones. There's others, but when they're in Gunlock, they they clearly center in on 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 Jake Jones, who was the water master. So he was in charge of maintaining the irrigation system. He was a former bishop. Um, it was interesting as I talked to people who knew him. He was also the town prankster, and so I think all I mean we we learn more about him. But you're right, Tom. If you look at just the image, he has those chiseled that chiseled face of a cowboy. You know that that really kind of iconic, almost stereotypical um, cowboy look. He's wearing a, a button-up denim shirt, right? That's clearly um, been worn quite a bit, and and he you know, has that kind of suspicious look at the camera, which I think any of us would if we had a, a couple of photographers going around us and photographing us. Um, what happens, though, in the next page, couple pages is interesting because um, they center in on the body of Jake Jones, and later on the most important image of the series is they photograph just his hat, um, which is kind of on his knee. His wool-weathered hand holds it in place, you can see this this sweat stain right around the brim, and and that image right they were they were getting to that point of being able to capture this as a, almost this symbol or this metaphor of cowboy. Um, if you turn the page to the next page though, you meet his parents who are Hiram and Mary, and if Jake Jones is kind of that iconic cowboy type, when you turn the page you see two individuals that you know you see Hiram sitting there kind of pulling at a stubble, and Mary is in her canning apron. They're smiling. They're congenial. So I think you're right. You see that kind of storied West, but then you also see the real West as you start to extend out beyond Jake Jones, and, and that's exactly what Lang and Adams did. Uh, and I think on Jake Jones, an illustration of you you in at least one image, you can't get the whole story. Uh, he's certainly not smiling no, here. No, no. I, I wouldn't have got Town Prankster from that photograph. Yeah, exactly. Again, and that's what happens. You know, stereotypes do that. I mean, it's um, the more you learn about the individuals, the more those types seem to kind of peel back and peel away. There's a uh, photograph on uh, approximately what page one eighty five or one eighty seven. Um, it the title is Saint George Highway. This is a beautiful photograph. Um, it's it's basically of a of, of a marquee for a for a motel, uh, Stardust yeah. Motel. Yeah, so what happens, just briefly, I know we're running out of time, but um, in Gunlock and Tokerville, they saw these old pioneering towns, and they really contrasted that with St. George, which with, you know, the highway running through it was in a moment of transition. And you're going from this kind of small little Mormon community now to a, you know, a stop that was connected to national parks on one side and California on the other. And so they go through and they photograph change and how the highway was bringing in change and and they photographed this, the billboards coming into town and and many of the hotels and, and street signs in st george and yeah that stardust motel photograph is a nice one um, of the neon and and what that represents in terms of the change and how st george is already moving beyond its past and moving into a, a very different future um, as we close up here, I want to uh, maybe contrast this project and, and the work of Ansel Adams and uh, Dorothy Lang uh, here in Utah with uh, maybe other projects that came not too far after. Uh, you, you mentioned at least one, I can't remember the gentleman's name, kind of a t- contemporary. Uh, his was a much more cynical view of, of the United States. Correct. One of, so the, one of their peers is a photographer by the name of Robert Frank. And Robert Frank... Um, completes one of the most important projects in, in the 20th century called the Americans. And as he's traveling, he's, a, he's Swiss, right, um, but 
um, and he travels through on a Guggenheim brand and photographs the United States. And it, it, it's cynical. Um, it can be dark at certain times. Um, it's truly an outsider's view of, of America as, you know, this kind of almost stumbling giant. I don't know the best way to put it, but it is a very different and very cynical um, view. And it's not a pretty book. It's not meant to be a pretty book, but it's meant to give true insight into kind of the, the, the character or the nature that he sees of this place. Ansel Adams and Dorothy Lang, on the other side, on the other hand, uh, they still believe in beauty. They still believe in these things that, you know, and they're, they're trying to capture the essence of these places in transition. Um, and it does. Robert Frank and Dorothy Ling, they're working on the same highway. Two very different parts of it. They're working basically at the same time. But if you compare those two, um, which I do in the last chapter, they become starkly different, a very starkly different view of what America is, but also what photography is. Just about a minute left. Uh, I wonder what your what's your takeaway. Well, you you've spent a lot of time with uh, you know traveling along with uh, Dorothy Lang and Ansel Adams with this <laughs> this this project. What uh, what, what do you take away from you know, this? these these projects? Uh, I take away these projects are as you know as you might imagine can be long projects. I started working on this as a graduate student years ago. Um, I started to write Daniel Dixon, the last surviving member of the collaboration. And so it's been, it's been on my mind for a long time, and um, I, I've grown to love the images. I still do work. I'm still writing on Dorothy Lang and Ansel Adams, so I'm not quite done with them yet. But this was this was a great project. I love getting to meet some of the old people in the photographs and to get their perspective, and it it it, it adds to um, the beauty of these photographs and. I'll be honest, it's nice to see the book out. It was a long time coming, um, and a lot of work and a lot of uh, ups and downs, but um, the images, are I, I enjoy them. I still, as I'm looking through these books, and, and when you asked me to come up with one photograph or a photograph that I really liked, I had like 10 that I could have mentioned. <laughs> so um, it's, it's, it's nice that it's out, and I'm, I'm hoping that other people can appreciate um, just what was done, especially those who have, have connection to this place. And it occurs to me here at the end that I I didn't uh, I didn't let you uh, talk about the one you wanted to I, did, I hogged all that. Oh no, I, um, yeah, I've got several. Favorites. That Stardust Motel is great. Is one of my favorites. The kids standing on the horses is one of my favorites. So we basically did. Okay, okay great. And the story continues. There, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the program, Christine Armbruster is uh, you know takes inspiration from this and continues this type of photojournalism. Correct. Uh, the bo- my next book is actually looking at the earlier part, so oh, great! There might be still more. Excellent, uh, James Swenson, author of a new book. It's called In a Rugged Land: Ansel Adams, Dorothea Lang, and the, the Three Mormon Towns Collaboration, 1953-1954. It's out from University of Utah Press. A beautiful book. Uh, and uh, James Swenson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we explore the fusion of ancient African rhythms with modern electronica, funk, and other musical styles. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Pack your bags and join us for African Groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.